Well, the scripture for this morning is from Romans chapter 2. And we'll be looking specifically at verses 17 through 24. And that is on page 1127 in the Pew Bibles. 17 through 24. So either just listen or read along to this portion of God's word. This is Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. And you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Uh, years ago, and I wish I could could uh, could remember um, exactly where, uh, but uh, I remember uh, a teaching uh, video from R.C. Sproul, where he described uh, four different kinds of people in regard uh, to salvation, and uh, he he regard he talked about those who are saved and know it; <laughs> they have security in the promises of of uh, God's word and in their in their salvation in Jesus Christ those who are saved and don't know it that is that they don't have they're saved but they don't have a sense of security uh, which uh, which which sometimes can come and go and people are not always secure in their sense of their salvation people who are not saved and know it that is that they reject the gospel outright and have nothing to do with it and then the fourth uh, category of persons, which was, as I recall, the point of the message uh, more broadly, or specifically in his message, and that is that those who are unsaved but don't know it, that is, people who, who, uh, who either go to church or have some sense of maybe praying the sinner's prayer once when they were 14, but there's been no... Uh, no desire for God, no change in their life, no difference from them than the unbelievers that live around them. And yet, they have a security, a false security, in this salvation that they claim. And uh, the point Sproul was making is that they are the, the hardest group of people to reach because they don't think that they need the gospel, because they think that they're already okay. Now, I bring that up because essentially that is what 
Paul is talking about here, although he's doing it in the context of addressing Jews and their specific situation. That he, there, there are, are Jews that followed religion and they took pride in their being Jewish. They took pride in their religious activities. They took pride, as we'll see next time, in their circumcision. And yet, all of that self-confidence was empty because it was all false and empty religion. They did not know God. They did not know Christ. And yet, they were confident in all of these outward things. And so Paul is, is pointing uh, to the folly of this outward security in, in religion rather than actually trusting in Christ. Now again, he's not going to get to the hope of Christ until halfway through chapter 3. But he's building this case that we are all under the wrath of God. And uh, here he goes and presents that to, to Jews who are religious. Uh, but we can certainly see this apply to people in the church who also are religious of a sense, but do not know Christ. And so let's see that as we work our way through. First, points of self-confidence in verses 17 through 20. Now last time we looked at verses 12 through 16 of this chapter, and, and there we saw Paul continue this overall theme of chapter 2, as he shows Jews and, and moral Gentiles that they are under the wrath of God for their sins, just as much as the idolatrous and rebellious Gentiles of the world who indulge in sins of all sorts and were condemned in chapter 1. Paul wrote that, God, wrote that God's judgment is, is just and it will be made fairly against each and every person, Jew and Gentile alike, against the standard of the law of God as people received it. He reminded us that Jews will be judged against the written law of God given through Moses and summarized in the Ten Commandments. And Gentiles, who do not know the Scriptures, will be judged against the law as God has written it on every human heart, and we, as we have a built-in sense of God's law. And all people know in their consciences that they have failed to keep even their own sense of right and wrong that God has given them. Paul told us that, that Jesus will judge by the standard of the law as people knew it. And all people will be found as guilty sinners who failed to keep God's requirement of obedience to his law and who are now under his wrath. Jews are not immune from the just judgment of God. They are not approved simply by having the law because they failed to keep it. They are under wrath as well. And so in today's verses 17 through 24, Paul continues on this theme by focusing on the Jews' false confidence and false sense of privilege as God's chosen people. He'll point to their confidence in having the law and how they wrongly take this as self-confidence before God. In truth, they are no better than unbelieving Gentiles that they look down upon for they fail to keep the law that they're so proud of. And in fact, they dishonor God by violating the law and show themselves to be unbelieving hypocrites in front of the Gentile world. These Jews are under God's wrath, and they need the one that Paul will point to in chapter 3, uh, the Savior of uh, Jesus Christ and the gift of righteousness and the gift of salvation. 
by God's grace found in Jesus Christ alone. And so we begin with verses 17 through 20 where Paul addresses an objection that uh, Jews might claim to what he's been writing. Uh, we ha- we uh, had uh, uh, Doug read from Philippians chapter 3 earlier, which is Paul relating his own story. And so uh, I think it's helpful to remember that this is Paul's own past. He was a Pharisee. He was one who thought he was reconciled to God because of his position and his following of the law outwardly. And so Paul is arguing from what he knows in, his, in himself in his pre-salvation days. And so he, he is able to, to address uh, this, this, uh, this Jewish objector to what he's been saying because he's been in his shoes. A Jew would object to what Paul is writing and he would claim special status and privilege as God, one of God's chosen people. And he's therefore different from Gentiles because of the outward things. They also have been given the law and circumcision. And they have been set apart from the rest of the world. And this gives them privilege before God, he would argue. But Paul will address these claims. He'll address circumcision, Lord willing, next week in in, uh, verses 25 through 29. And today, we'll look at their claim of privilege because they have the law of God. But in both cases, Paul will point out that having these things is of no advantage in the judgment because they failed to keep them. They rested and relied on God's choice of them or the, the works of the law outwardly rather than seeing their sinful failures and repenting and trusting in the Messiah. Verses 17 through 20 lists a number of privileges that a Jew would boast about and have confidence in. Paul uses eight verbs to describe uh, these areas of self-confidence, and we'll briefly walk, walk through them. But notice beforehand something not clear necessarily in English translations. Uh, all, all the way through from 17 through 24, Paul is addressing the individual. A you here is, in this passage, is second person singular. It's not second person plural. It's not, it's not yins. Um, it's, it's a second person singular. He is addressing a you. He is addressing a, a, a person, a fellow Jew, someone who believes what he used to believe. And so he's addressing, it's interesting, he gets personal here. And he's addressing this person who, who finds identity in the group, who, who identifies with them as part of the group, but it's all self-confidence and external and boastful and a false sense of privilege rather than a realization of his or her sins and failures and need of the gospel. And uh, for those note takers out there, we'll we'll number the subpoints, and uh, and and so we start with subpoint number one. Paul begins, but if you bear the name Jew, now the term Jew originally referred to a person descended from the tribe of Judah, uh, but then became uh, known as a way to refer to all uh, all of uh, Israel. Uh, they became known as Jews. 
And to be a Jew is to be distinct and set apart from all other ethnic groups of mankind. And they were chosen by God to be his covenant people. And uh, uh, to that extent, it's true. Uh, We read in Deuteronomy 14 and 2, The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But this was not to be a cause for personal or group pride or arrogance or privilege. As if you're a member of the royal family or a privileged son and daughter of the Rockefellers or the Vanderbilts. The Lord himself says in Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. There was nothing special, in other words, that merited God's choosing of them. It was all of grace. And so there should be humility, not boasting, as if they are privileged and somehow better than others. Second, the self-confident person is one who does rely on the law. And this refers to their possession of the law of God, the book of Moses and the rest of the scriptures. And again, this is a blessing to have the word of God, God's sure revelation as he gave it through the Old Testament prophets. Uh, the scriptures, of course, are, are wonderful and, and a great blessing. God's law reveals his character and, and how we are to live. God's word is inerrant and tells us much about God and the world and ourselves and how we can be reconciled to God in the gospel. But sadly, many relied on the law as a way to earn salvation by good works, which is not possible. Many also thought that merely having it set them apart and and gave them favored and accepted status with God. But there is no value in that if it is not applied rightly. As James warns in James 1, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Sadly, Israel had God's word and boasted of it, but it did not rightly respond to the gospel and the truth that it is and that it brought to them. In other words, they were largely deluded hearers. May we not merely have God's word, but read it and take it to heart and prayerfully seek its application by God's power as we respond rightly to it. The self-confident person is also one who will boast in God, point number three. They have knowledge of God, the true and living God revealed in God's word. And that's a good thing. They are not like the pagans around them who invent false gods and idols and create rituals and wicked practices and worship of those false gods. And this is a good thing to embrace the revelation of the only living and true God as he reveals himself in his word. And yet, they boasted about it. They boasted about their knowledge of God rather than actually pursuing a relationship with that one true God. There is a a warning here that we 
are not to be boastful in scripture knowledge and knowledge of theology and knowledge of God that we have and treat it merely as academic truth or something to boast in. It's good to know the true God and to not accept the untruths of, of Islam or Buddhism or atheism or whatever false gods or false systems of worship are out there in the world. But that is not enough. We must pursue the true God in the gospel and by his grace and humbly repent and believe and receive the blessings of relationship with him as offered in the gospel. The Lord says in Jeremiah 9 and 24, let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. A preacher, uh, Legan Duncan writes, if we simply become obsessed with the facts revealed about God, and we do not realize that the word of God has given us his word about himself, is precisely so that we would fellowship with him and experience him as he is, and as he is towards us in his benefits, then we have misused the theology he's provided us. Anytime we separate the knowledge of God from God himself, we will go awry. And so uh, the Apostle Paul uh, accuses his own people, his own fellow Jews, of knowing a lot about God, but not knowing God himself. Paul continues in verse 18 that the, the self-confident person is he that forth knows his will. They have the word of God, and so they know his commandments, what is approved by him, much about him that is not revealed in general revelation. And certainly they know uh, more than Gentiles because they have God's word. As we sing in Psalm 147, he declared his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. But again, instead of being humbled by this, they were arrogant and, and condescending toward others rather than appreciative and, and desiring to live, in, live out the word and pursue God by it and humbly share it with those around them. In John 8, Jesus speaks to fellow Jews who had knowledge of God's word, his revealed will, and yet amazingly reject the Messiah that the scriptures point to as he is standing right in front of them. And he says there in John 8, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. And so may we study God's revealed will and not fail to see and embrace Jesus as we find him there. And may we be humbled by the wonder of God's word to us. That we have the very word of God available to us. And that is a humbling and blessed thing. And something that, that ought to encourage us to be in it 
and to humbly share it with those around us. Well, fifth, this person approves the things that are essential. Now, the word translated essential is better translated uh, best or excellent. And so the phrase points to how God's word enables uh, people to have good discernment in their lives, able to distinguish right and wrong. Again, we sing in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And those, that's a good thing. But sadly, there is an arrogance that they brought to this wonderful and humbling blessing. They viewed themselves by having this, this knowledge as superior to the sinners around them. May we look at God's word and, and look to his spirit for guidance as we live this life. Now, the scripture is a blessing for sure. Second Timothy 3 says all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. But may we never be self-righteous or feel superior to those who do not know and do not have the guidance of God's word. May we humbly share it with them and humbly receive it ourselves. And may we never think that we're in the know kind of folk in an arrogant or condescending kind of way. Rather, let us humbly bring God's word to ourselves and to each other and to those around us. Sixth, the Jews are self-confident in being instructed out of the law. Now, the Greek word being instructed is... uh, Catecheo, which may sound familiar to us. Uh, That's where we get the English word catechism. And it means receiving instruction by hearing. And so the word of God was read and explained in the synagogues and the Jews knew it and they learned it and they received instruction about it in their homes. Again, all good things. But once again, this good thing was a cause for boasting and being puffed up. And they did not actually apply the word that they learned. Seventh, the Jew is self-confident in verses 19 and 20 in four teaching roles that they practice. You are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a, a teacher of the immature. And again, these are things that in and of themselves are good. It's good for the spiritually blind to have someone guide them in the truth. But interestingly, this word guide is used only negatively in the New Testament to describe how the Pharisees and other Jews, though they know Scripture, were blind themselves. Jesus says in Matthew 15 and 14, for example, let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. If, and if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Next, being a light to those in darkness is good. But sadly, the Jews obscured the light and, and buried it under tradition and legalism and man-made rules and thoughts of privilege that hid the gospel. And so while they boasted of being a shining light to others, they were in the dark themselves. In the gospel, we know that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the light. Jesus again spoke to them in John 8 and 12, 
saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And those saved by him in his grace have the blessing of of pointing others to him, of humbly and helpfully shining a light in a dark world. Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But certainly this is not true for those who are still in the darkness of unbelief and who are without Christ. The self-confident person also sees himself as a corrector of the foolish. Uh, They teach those who do not know or, or do not understand. And again, teaching is good. And yet they are not teaching the fullness and really they're not teaching the point of God's word. And so they are not good teachers because they do not know Christ. As God warned Israel in Isaiah 3 and 12, O my people, those who guide you lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. The self-confident person also sees himself as a teacher of the immature. And the Greek word here for immature is literally the word for baby, and so captures the idea of instructing those who know little or nothing. And again, that can be a good thing. But sadly, they boast of their greater knowledge and their enlightened status, rather than bringing interested souls the word of God humbly and seeking the God who gave it to them. And finally, point eight. The Jew addresses Paul here, that Paul addresses here rather, is self-confident in having the law, in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Now, Paul previously wrote of the law written on every human heart, and here the Jew has the greater blessing of the written law, the word of God, a pure form of knowledge and truth. And again, what a blessing this is. But also, again, what a tragedy it is that the word is not truly accessed or or comprehended or used by them. They see themselves as teachers, as superior, but sadly they don't get the point. They don't get the primary purpose of all of it, that it is to be applied to the heart, that they are sinners who fail to keep the law and are under God's wrath and are in need of the Messiah in need of a Savior. Well, second, failure and dishonor in verses 21 through 24. And here Paul presents his Jewish reader and uh, any self-confident person with a series of rhetorical questions. And these questions, if answered honestly, demand yes answers and show that he or she is no better than the Gentile sinners that they look down upon. As uh, John Stott notes, they do not live up to their knowledge. They do not practice what they preach. They have great privileges, no doubt, but they do not live lives of godly obedience. In fact, far from it. In verse 21, Paul asks, You who teach another, do you not teach yourself? They see themselves as, as wiser and more knowledgeable, but in their pride and sense of privilege, they fail to see their own failures to obey the law and actually know the need that they have for true repentance 
and grace and salvation offered in the gospel. They teach others, but they don't apply it to themselves. Paul then asks more questions that give these kinds of answers, pointing out how they sin. You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? They proclaim, of course, that stealing is sinful, breaking of the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. But while the, the, they, they would condemn this behavior in others, this self-confident person does the same thing himself. Now, it's not clear what specifics Paul had in mind, but it's common enough here for him to mention. That can be easy for us as well. It's easy for us to point to the sin, for instance, of retail theft, which is, which is uh, out of control in many parts of the country today. But what about not putting in a full day's work or, or being poor stewards with what God has given you or not paying back loans or, or even being greedy or envious? Uh, read through what the larger catechism puts for uh, you shall not steal. And it's a very humbling the ways in which we can discover our sins in this area. Next, Paul adds in verse 22, you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Adultery obviously is forbidden in the commandments. And again, we are quick to condemn it when we hear of it. But the self-righteous person must also admit that they commit it too. The Gospels tell us of the easy divorce policies in Israel at the time, which Jesus condemns in the Gospels. And in Matthew 19 says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And that's, uh, there's much said about that in Matthew. But not only that, Jesus gets to the sin of adultery in the heart and of the mind in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so we can include all kinds of things here, inappropriate relationships with those of the opposite sex, uh, use of pornography, lustful thoughts, and so on as violations of this commandment. Next, Paul adds, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, commentators debate this quite a bit. It was interesting to read many, many pages devoted to trying to figure out what Paul was getting at here. Uh, it is possible that he's referring to Jews literally stealing precious metals and gems from pagan temples in their various locations and thinking that since they are, are stealing from Gentile pagans and, and false religions, that there's no harm in stealing those things. To them, Paul is saying, well, theft is theft. It doesn't matter. It's also offered by some commentators that Paul is including here withholding tithes due to the Lord, as in Malachi 3 and 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Now, either way, the self-righteous man is no different than the Gentile who goes in and robs a merchant. Then Paul adds a final rhetorical question in verse 23. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, you dishonor, do you dishonor God? And of course the answer is yes. You boast of having the law, 
but in breaking it you dishonor God. Douglas Moo writes, All such pride in the law claims to its antiquity and perfection, boasts about Israel as the people entrusted with the law, becomes insignificant and indeed damaging when the law is not obeyed. It is not boasting in the law that brings honor to God, but obedience to it. Sin dishonors God, dishonors the God they claim to serve, the God they claim privilege with. And dishonor means to treat someone in a shameful manner, to mistreat or to abuse. And how wicked it is to treat God shamefully, to disrespect and dishonor the Creator, the God who is good and generous and kind. And that is what everyone does when we sin, when we break God's law. Paul then concludes this section with a quotation from Isaiah 52 and 5. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. In Isaiah 52, Israel's sin and rebellion, which caused foreigners, uh, here caused foreigners uh, to insult God's name. It was Israel's wickedness that, that brought about the exile, which, when it came, uh, had pagan Gentiles blaspheming God and destroying Jerusalem. And so the application here is that the Jew who fails to repent and trust in the Lord moves Gentiles to blaspheme God because the Jew sins and give, gives the Lord a bad name and a horrible witness among the pagans. The Jews are to be better. God's people are to be better in the sheer hypocrisy of it that's witnessed by the Gentiles around them, is not missed by the Gentiles. And we know that in our own day. The people around us can spot hypocrisy. This is a sinful but unrepentant person, and yet is no better than, than the generations who brought about the exile. And that's a strong condemnation to a fellow Jew. And it is meant to be. It is meant to be personal. Again, to the individual listening. The self-righteous person is under wrath by God just as much as the Gentile as they do the same things. And worse yet, they bring dishonor to God's name as they represent Him and yet still commit wickedness. And so how might we apply today's passage? Well, to the unchurched or unbelieving person, you should recognize that you are not as good as you claim to be or as you might pretend to be. Like this self-righteous person Paul addresses, you may judge yourself as better than others or basically a good person. And you may, as we saw last time, have many ways in which your life and behavior is, is good and agreeable to your conscience. But you do not always practice what you preach either. You lust, you desire what others have, you lie, you gossip, you sin in all kinds of ways. You do not even keep your own standards. And Paul tells us you must answer to your Creator, whom you have failed to worship and serve and thank. Hebrews 9 tells us it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. And all those who have not perfectly obeyed God's law stand justly condemned by him. Romans 3 says, 
By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you are a religious person or a churchgoer, yet you have never trusted in Jesus, you've never internalized the externals of religion, and you're counting on your religious practice to excuse you from judgment or to give you privilege or advantage because you have a heritage or, or own a Bible or have a moral life, then think again. Paul's point is that you too sin, and being a religious person does not exempt you from God's wrath for your sin. You sin just like the world around you, and God sees the heart, as we saw last time, the secret sins as well. That you are guilty just like the worldly folk you may think yourself better than. The only way for any sinner in any situation or background to be saved is to reject any, any hypocrisy that is in you, any fakeness or, or false professions or, or false thoughts that religion will save. And repent of your sins against the holy and just God who made you and to whom you must answer and trust in Jesus Christ, person and work alone, for God to forgive you and to reconcile you to himself. And all that by God's gift and grace alone. As Paul will go on to say, Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the the second person of the triune God, who became also fully man to be the saving substitute of all who trust in him, in his works to reconcile them to God. He came and obeyed all of God's laws, which we see in Romans 1 and 2, uh, no person, Jew or Gentile, is able to do. And on the cross, he took the wrath of God due to us uh, for our sins upon himself. He died and was buried. And on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead and accepted sacrifice and a living Savior. And all those who trust in Jesus, the risen Savior and Son of God, are covered in his righteousness, are forgiven by his sacrifice and justified by God in his courtroom, all by his grace and mercy alone. Left to our own, we could never earn it, and we do not deserve it. But in Jesus, salvation is freely given. Paul in Romans 3 will write, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now God has made known a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And so the call is for you to take hold of Jesus and this offer of salvation given in the gospel. And in him there will be true change internally as we internally take hold of him, as the Holy Spirit will change you from the inside out. And it will not be hypocrisy, even though believers are certainly inconsistent and still sin. There will be genuine change from the inside out by the power of God. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so what a blessing it is, as Paul himself knows, to no longer live in a false self-confidence based on externals, but rather to internally trust and know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and have that gift of salvation in Him. As Paul writes, and we'll repeat some of these words from Philippians chapter 3, as Paul writes of his own conversion, uh, so we are encouraged and we bless God for what He has done in us to save us. Paul writes, Glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, to know Him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you and praise you for this portion of your word and ask that you would apply it to our hearts. Uh, We thank you for Paul's words and addressing uh, someone much like him in his own past. uh, Someone who who has the the privileges of of being a Jew, of of knowing God's word, and yet instead of being humbled and repentant and following what that word says, approaching it in pride and arrogance and a sense of superiority and privilege, which is empty and outside of salvation in Christ. And so we pray for those who, who, uh, who hold such views, be they Jews or or churched people, or people out in the world. May you uh, think on these things and see uh, the emptiness of merely outward religion or privilege and instead embrace Christ personally and the promises offered in the gospel and know real salvation and change from the inside out for those who have been saved by his grace. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.